Good morning and welcome. We're glad you're with us today. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Philippians chapter 4, the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. I will be speaking on the subject of spiritual stability, confident trust in the Lord, the necessity of confidence in the Lord for spiritual stability. I'll begin reading in verse 5, Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. This morning we are going to study a sentence and a command. The Lord is at hand is the sentence. The command is be anxious for nothing. For several weeks now we have been studying spiritual stability, how to stand fast in these troubled times that we're living in. We've learned so far that you can stand, you can have spiritual stability by developing harmony in the fellowship, having joy in the Lord, contentment in all circumstances. And today we move to the next subject of confident trust in God. These are all the first steps to spiritual stability. And so the first point I want to give you this morning is our verse The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. That's your first point. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. There is no greater source of spiritual stability than the confidence in the fact that the Lord is near. The word ingus here means near. It means near in space, near in time. And Paul's emphasis here is on the Lord's nearness in the sense of His presence. He is near both here and, and He hears our cry, and He sees and hears our, our hearts. And He is there, He is here to strengthen us and to sustain us. In Psalm 73, verse 28, the psalmist declared, The nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is my good. That's Psalm 73, verse 28. Because of God's nearness, believers should not be fearful. They should not be anxious, and they should not be wavering. They should not collapse, but be strong and be stable. Unfortunately, we face many trials today. Believers often seem to forget that they even know God. They lose their confident trust in Him. They lose their self-control and their spiritual stability, and they are defeated. Even strong believers are not immune to this. Sometimes they experience the occasional lapse and an incident of this is seen in the life of David. You could find it in 1 Samuel chapter 21, but I have outlined it here for you, so if you'd just like to listen. Seeking refuge from Saul's relentless pursuit, David sought asylum amongst the Philistines in the city of Gath. Some of the Philistines recognized him and said to Achish, the king of Gath, is, not, is this not David, the king of the land? Did he not sing this as one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? And realizing that his true identity had become known, David greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. And instead of trusting the Lord to deliver him, David panicked and disguised his sanity before the Philistines and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors at the gate and left his saliva, let his saliva run down his beard. His act produced necessarily the desired result. 
Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act like a madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? And as a result, David departed from there and escaped to the cave at Adullam. Here, this, with this crisis past, David had time to reflect on how he should have handled the situation in Gath. He lapsed in his commitment to the Lord. He lapsed in his spiritual stability. He became anxious and he wavered. In Psalm 57 that was written at this time, he reaffirmed the truths about God that he had temporarily forgotten. This strong man of God with a heart like God's had forgotten his God. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry to God most high, the God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He, he reproaches him who tramples upon me. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. That's Psalm 57, verses 1 through 3. So I want you to write this down. Remembering the character of God, remembering the character of God restores David's spiritual stability and his joy, enabling him to declare in Psalm 57, verse 7, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. And like David, the prophet Habakkuk faced a crisis. But unlike David, he maintained his spiritual stability. And what I would like you to notice particularly is that we are living in days like the days of Habakkuk. And I want you to see how Habakkuk responded to the tyranny that was taking place in his time. In Habakkuk 1, 2 through 4, the prophet cried out to God about his appearance, about his apparent indifference to Judah's apostasy. He says, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on this wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contentions arises. Therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore justice comes out perverted. Do you feel there's something similar today with what Habakkuk is asking God? Are we not living in the very same situation and to, put, to Habakkuk's dismay, God answered and said, things are not going to get better, they're going to get worse. Are you feeling it yet? Does this feel like our history, our national history? Look among the nations and observe, the Lord says. Be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. 
They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originates with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keeners than the wolves. And, and in the evening, their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar off. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces move forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers and are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every forest and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the winds and pass on. But they will be held guilty, they whose strength is in their God. That's Habakkuk 1, 5 through 11. Just when Habakkuk thought he was getting an answer from God of good news, much worse news comes. And instead of answering his original question, God raises a second, even more vexing question. And I want you to write this down because this is significant for the time in which we live. How could God use a godless pagan nation with pagan leaders to chastise his people? <clears throat> How could God use a godless pagan nation and pagan leaders to chastise His people? Faced with Judah's apostasy, the impending Chaldean invasion, and his own unanswered questions, Habakkuk reminded himself of what he knew to be true about his God. He says in verses 12 through 13, Are you not from everlasting O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. You see, Habakkuk reminded himself of God's eternity, His faithfulness, His justice, His sovereignty, and His holiness. And despite the trials, the doubts, and the questions he faced, Habakkuk's faith and trust in God stood firm because he looked to his God, not to the circumstances. And he affirmed the importance of living a life of faith. The Bible says it is impossible to please God without faith. It seems to me more folks think it's impossible to please God without knowing all of the information, the inside and the outside. When Habakkuk said, the righteous will live by his faith in Habakkuk 2.4. So here's what I'd like you to take away. Both initially in justification and continually in sanctification, the Christian life is a life of faith in God, and a God who is present, who is near. As he reminded himself of the greatness of his God, Habakkuk's faith grew stronger. 
And by the end of his prophecy, he was able to sing triumphantly of God's glorious nature and power, saying in Habakkuk chapter 3, 17 and 19, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive shall fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation, the Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like the hind's feet and makes me walk on the high places. Hind's feet on high places. He wasn't concerned with the circumstances and everything that he saw. He knew that his God would be faithful to him although he was going to allow wickedness to come and chastise his people for their apostasy. The bottom line is Habakkuk's faith in God made him a spiritually stable man. A spiritually stable man. So much so that even if the normal, dependable things of life suddenly collapsed, he would still rejoice in his God. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is near. The Lord is near, and the Lord that is near is the Almighty, the true, the living God that is revealed only in the Scriptures. And those who delight themselves in His holy power, in His love, His wisdom, and cultivate a deep knowledge of Him by studying and meditating on His Word will live by the foundation of the truth. They will be spiritually stable. Therefore, because of the presence of God, believers are to be anxious for nothing. The sentence of the text is, The Lord is near. The command of the text is, Be anxious for nothing. The fact is, nothing is outside of God's sovereign control or too difficult for Him to handle. There's just nothing outside of His control. A low view of God leads to a myriad of problems in the church. I want to quote for you a quote by A.W. Tozer. He is one of the most godly authors. This was written in his book called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's on page 6. It says, The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has sustained and has substituted for it one so low, one so ignoble, so to be utterly unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little, and without her knowledge and her very unanswer her unawareness only makes her situation more tragic. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere amongst us. A whole new philosophy of Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking, and it is simply to have a low view of God. Weak, struggling, unstable Christians, and there are many, 
need to build their strength on the foundation of what the Bible says about God and the result of the church's failure to equip believers with the knowledge of God's character and works is the lack of understanding of His nature and His purposes, and a subsequent lack of confidence in Him, and the shifting sands of shallow and faulty theology provide no stable footing for the believer today. So here's the point. Anxious, fretful, worried, harried believers are inherently unstable and vulnerable to trials and temptations. Anxiety is both a violation of Scripture and it is totally unnecessary. And the proof is found in the magnificent passage that Jesus declared on the Sermon on the Mount where He pointed to the sinful folly of anxiety in Matthew chapter 6 verses 25 through 34. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Do they not sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them? Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you being worried can add one single hour to your life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But God so clothed the grass of the fields, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace. Will He not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying... What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek after these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So our first point is, the Lord is near, be anxious for nothing. The second point is the three occasions for anxiety. The three occasions for anxiety. They've been boiled down to basically just three things cause anxiety, or three occasions that you may choose to be anxious. I'm quoting from the great Puritan writer Charles Simeon here, the wonderful Puritan preacher these, the, he dealt with this in his century like we do in ours. And so I just want you to know briefly there are three great occasions for anxiety that I'd like you to write down. The first one is, the first occasion for anxiety is that there is some good desired. There is some good desired. Men in different situations of life have their hearts set upon such things that may be possibly obtained by them. They imagine what they can have that would bring about great happiness for them. They press forward to the attainment of honor. They have an insatiable thirst for gain, others do. 
Some altogether are wrapped up in idolatrous attachments to fellow creatures or events. Others are disquieted like Rachel and Hannah because they are disappointed in the hope of not having a family. But all these anxieties, as we learn from Jesus, are sinful. All the anxiety over these things are sinful. We may desire the good things of life, but our desire must be subordinated to the will of God. If you are anxious about anything, be anxious about the will of God. But don't be anxious at all about that, because God's will will be accomplished. He is sovereign over all things. And while we use the proper means of attaining our wishes, there's still the occasion for anxiety by the good we desire. We must use them then with an entire submission to the disposal of God's sovereignty. So whatever good we seek, we need to seek it for His disposal, not just for our pleasure. And our pleasure should be to be used of Him. So one of the reasons or one of the causes of occasion for anxiety is there is some good desired. But one that is more logical to us is the second one. The next great occasion for anxiety is some evil dreaded. Is some evil dreaded. Men are sometimes so overcome with the apprehension of a heavy loss that they're unable to prosecute with attention their proper business. They cannot take care of what they need to take care of. They are overwhelmed by their circumstances, whereby the loss, if sustained, may in time not be able to be retrieved. One example of that would be suicide. Sadly, it is true. And it is no uncommon thing to find men also sacrificing their honor sacrificing their good name, their integrity, their conscience, yea, their very hope of salvation in order to avert some impending calamity. Some evil dreaded is a great occasion for anxiety. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious human beings rush and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, I suppose that it must be that they have no heavenly Father such as cares for you and me. The other great occasion for anxiety is some trouble felt. There's some good desired, some evil dreaded, and some trouble felt, whether it be from disease in our person or embarrassment in our circumstances, the loss of a dear relative, how ready we are to give ourselves up to sorrow. To sorrow as if our wounds were incurable and our misery irremediable. It cannot be remedied. The instances are not few wherein men are so overwhelmed by their afflictions their intellects have become so impaired, they are reduced to nothing more than mental derangement. They have gone mad. Yea, even worse, sometimes they are the products of their own trouble they create from such. And they plunge their souls even into hell 
when a hand of grace has been extended to them and they, and they try to rid themselves of all temporal distresses. There's really not any other cause of occasion for anxiety than a good desired, a dread that is feared, or some trouble that's been felt. And you see, we live in an age today where it seems like there are those who believe in such excessive sorrow. There should just be so much sorrow that there is no bound for it. It is a boundless sorrow. Should not sorrow be moderated by the consideration that the cup is put into the hands by our gracious Father? He does not give us anything we cannot handle. Should that moderate our sorrow? And that if drunk in submission to His will, it shall be sanctified even to our eternal good. For what the devil means for bad, God works for good in our lives. But yes, there are those who live their life at the complaint window of, of life, at the complaint window of God. They are overcome by their sorrow, their dashed dreams, or their fear of dread. And it's all sin, according to what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. It's all sin. He says, do not take concern for yourself. Do not worry. Again, do not worry. He says it not once, twice, but three times. Be anxious for nothing. And so the Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. I've just shown you the three occasions for anxiety. Now I want to encourage you. Number three, there is no need to panic. There is no need to panic. Paul instructs the Philippians to avoid being anxious in their Christian lives. He commands them, be anxious for nothing. In other words, stop being anxious. Paul put it another way, or put it another way, you could say, stop worrying. Anxiousness is a Greek word that means to be troubled with cares. The idea is literally to be pulled in different directions or pulled apart, but the picture is to suffer tension of your hopes pulling in one direction and the trials of life pulling in the opposite direction, being pulled apart by your hopes and your trials. That's the reality of the Word. It's to be, it is to be absolutely strangled, which is the root word of the word worry. To be strangled. Worry comes from an old English word meaning to strangle. When you're anxious, you're strangled. And this is a good image because stress chokes our inner life and sometimes the way we feel even physically robbing us of peace. Worry squeezes the life out of our heart and it strangles the enjoyment of life. To be anxious is to be a worrier, to be fearful and distressed. And such anxiety compromises our faith in the sovereign purpose of God that compromises us that in fact our own minds go mad and we forget that God is in control. He is sovereign. And that in a way, that anxiety robs us of joy, which Paul said in verse 3, Rejoice in the Lord. Always again I say rejoice. And so when he says, be anxious for nothing, this is a command. Though it may be strange to think of it like this, to be anxious is to be disobedient to God. So write it down. To be anxious is to be disobedient to God. And sin is any disobedience to God. 
Worry is a failure to trust that God is in control. It reveals that we're not sure that God will provide what we need in His perfect timing like He does for the robins and the sparrows. Worry is gazing at my problems in self-reliance. Write this down. Worrying is gazing at my problems in self-reliance and self-pity or both rather than looking to the Lord independent in dependence upon Him. Worry is the failure to believe the promises of God in His Word. This does not mean that we should not be concerned with the issues of our lives in the midst of difficulties. Yet Paul stresses that believers should not be pulled apart and strangled of their peace and their joy. We must not be anxious and we must not be worried. And again, Jesus taught the same thing. He says in Matthew 6, 24, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Thus He commands, Jesus Christ your Savior commands, stop being worried. And instead, trust God who will provide for your needs. So the first point is the Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. I've given you the three, the three occasions for anxiety. I've just shown you there is no need to panic. And number four, I want to show you be anxious for nothing is a command in this context. It is a command in this context. And I want to say three things about it. The first is, it's a command that adds value. It's a command that develops virtue. And it's a command that brings victory. The first one is this, a command that adds value. When you start feeling that anxious thought come to you, when it begins to rise up, in your flesh, I want you to imagine a door is being opened. I want you to imagine that a door is being opened for you to step through and to step away from that anxiety. Because I want you to see, be anxious for nothing adds value to your life. And I want you to see it in this context. Paul is dealing here in Philippians chapter 4 with a conflict that is going on inside of the church at Philippi. This is probably the best church in the New Testament. And he is dealing with a conflict. He says, Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy, my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, Help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. You see, Paul starts this text with standing fast, speaking about spiritual stability. Then he, he shows them their problem. They have a conflict in their church. And what he teaches them by being anxious for nothing and setting up that command to be anxious of not for nothing, he starts with the spiritual concept of harmony. Of harmony. 
How many times have you heard of churches where people get upset with one another and instead of finding harmony in the Lord, those churches eventually split? Those churches eventually fall apart. They become houses divided and consequently synagogues of Satan. Here, he says, be anxious for nothing, but up here the context gives it away. There is value in our life by bringing harmony to people. And by bringing harmony to the lives of people in the life of Christ, then that is an antidote to anxiety. We see a problem between people. We go in the Lord and try to help them restore each other in the Lord as true companions to God. As I showed you in this message, Susagos is the word for true companion. We can be a Susagos. We can go and help those people. But we say, well, I'm not going to do that. I may get hurt. I may do that. That's the voice of anxiety speaking. So when anxiety rears its head, imagine a door is being opened for you to walk through to go and add value to your life. Not with anxiety, but doing the very opposite of it. Here in this context, being a peacemaker. They'll inherit the earth, Jesus said. Then He talks in the next verse, in verse 3, in verse 4, he talks about rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. There is the value of joy. The antithesis of worry is joy. You see, this command adds value not only in producing harmony, but it, it, it adds value by producing joy because you walk through that door and you say, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord always. I'm not going to be anxious. The Lord is near. I'm going to be joyful. I'm going to be harmonious. Down here in verses 11 and 12, notice what Paul says. He says right here, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Notice what he says. He says, I have learned this contentment. And that's also what he says right here in verse 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men. That Greek word that is there for that gentleness is a word that the best way we can talk about it is this, this graciousness, this loving graciousness, this contentment, this yieldedness. The same thing that he does down here in verse 11. He says to them, you be gentle and content. And down here he says, I am gentle and content. Why? Because there is no anxiety. There is no anxiety. It leads to confidence as well. You see, not being anxious, this command to not be anxious adds value. Because look at verse 13. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's in the context of this passage. Now, I can't go fly like an airplane and quote Psalm or Philippians 4.13 and say, well, I can go fly like an airplane. I'll go jump off the building. We'll see how that works out. In the context of what he's saying here, he has said, I have learned by not being anxious. I have learned by rejoicing in the Lord. I have learned by being in harmony. I have learned by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. I have learned by focusing my mind on virtue. I have learned by rejoicing the Lord always. I have learned by being content when I'm hungry and when I'm full, when I'm a base and when I abound. He said, I have learned that in those circumstances I can do anything God commands me to do. And what is the key? It all hinges on the command. Be anxious for nothing. 
You see, I'll tell you something. There's only one other command here in this text. It's there in verse 8. The first command here says, Be anxious for nothing in verse 8. It says right here, Dwell on these things. Dwell on these things. So I want to show you that. There's the command that adds value. Then this command also adds, develops virtue. This command develops virtue. You see, when you feel anxiety coming up, open the door. It's a door opening not only for you to add virtue, but to develop, or to add anxiety, to add value, but it's also an opportunity to develop virtue. It's to open the door to virtuous living. You see, everything that comes up to verse 6 is about harmony, about joy, about learning contentment leads to gentle living. Learning contentment leads to gentle living. After all, the Lord is near. But you see here in Philippians, in, verse one, in chapter 1, verse 6, He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. That's a virtue of God. And I'm going to show you more about that in a moment. But look here at verse 8 as well. In verse 8, here's what happens. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue or anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So that begs the question, what are you filling your mind with throughout the day? What are you looking at? What are you watching? What are you listening to? How, what are you consuming in your conversations? This is a clear command of God. Whatever things are true, written to the children of God, He says, brethren, whatever things are noble, are just, pure, lovely, of good report, any virtue, anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Now, in the context of which Paul wrote these words, the prevailing philosophical thought believed that virtue was found only in four things. One was temperance. One was justice. One was practical wisdom. And the last one was the idea of living peacefully with one another. You have justice you have temperance, you have courage and fortitude, practical wisdom. That was the thought of the day. And so when Paul is writing these things, he is actually teaching them a different way to learn than they had, or to look at things than they had learned at their schools. They were steeped in the virtues of philosophy, fortitude and courage and temperance and practical wisdom. He says here, that's what those men and women thought about all the time, and those are good things. But they said there was nothing beyond those things. There were no other virtues to think about. And here the apostle says, oh no, whatever things are noble or just or pure or lovely or good report, whatever is a virtue, anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. But you and I know the truth of the matter is this is not what people meditate on today. They meditate on whatever information they can gather about the circumstances that surround them, that envelop them, 
and it is truly what controls their thoughts. And the Lord says in His Word, stop it. Be anxious for nothing. If you want to become a bigger warrior, consume more information that is not of God. I'm reading a book at night. It's called How to Be Miserable. How to Be Miserable. It is a fascinating book. I'm halfway through it. And one chapter, the chapters are about three pages long. I read it when I take my bath at night. And, and it says, if you really want to be miserable, consume the news, the 24-7 news cycle. Consume it. And you will guarantee your misery. You will become so miserable, you can add misery upon misery. And so if you want to truly be miserable, just keep doing what you're doing. But if you want to rejoice in the Lord, if you want spiritual stability, if you want to develop genuine virtue in your life, then you need to develop the meditation on whatever is noble, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever things are of good report, whatever things are of virtue, and everything that is praiseworthy. It is on those things that you meditate. And so the command to be anxious for nothing adds value to your life. It develops virtue in your life. And and finally, it's a command that brings victory to your life. In Philippians 1 verse 6, it says, He who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. And so when you begin to feel the occasion for anxiety to come up, when you begin to feel that perhaps there is some good desire or some evil dreaded or some trouble felt, and you begin to feel that anxious moment, realize the door is opening and you can say, you know what, I'm going to be victorious over this. I'm not going to be anxious because Philippians 1 6 says, He he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. In verse 13 of chapter 4 it says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And over here in verse 19 it gives this marvelous promise. It says, And my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. So it's a command that adds value. It's a command that develops virtue and it's a command that brings victory. So in conclusion... It, it's worth asking yourself this question. I want you to ask yourself this question. What is there in my life, what is there in my life that causes me a sense of panic? That causes me a sense of panic, either low level or almost paralyzing? What is it that causes me Anxiety. I showed you there's no need to panic. But what is there in your life that causes you anxiety? What is it in your life that you succumb to it? I want you to understand something as I conclude. God is not worried. God is not anxious. God is not roaming about, fretting, disturbed and upset. He's not panicking. No, because God is in control. If He'll feed the sparrows and the robins, and He'll clothe the lilies of the field, He'll take care of you. The Bible says, my righteous will not beg bread. No, not one. He'll take care of you. Even Habakkuk realized that the the government that he had in the days that he lived was being replaced by one far worse 
a tyrannical government, a people that would come and their horses were faster than eagles and they took what was not theirs and they destroyed and they killed and they maimed and they harmed. And there was nothing Habakkuk could do about it. And so he fell back on what he knew and who he knew. And it was his God and he sang hymns to him for his sovereignty over his circumstances. And he put his panicking aside. And it is interesting, Habakkuk was given to the people as a prophet. And he is the pastoral prophet because he comes to them and he says, folks, it's going to get worse. But our understanding of God is going to get so much better. Our relationship with the Lord is going to become so much stronger. I'd like to say he even thought, bring your worst Chaldeans for we shall not be moved. Why? Because he had spiritual stability. He was not driven by anxiety. He knew the Lord was near. There is no panic in heaven, friend, but only plans to work out God's good purpose in your life. That's all there is. There is simply no need to be anxious. And so here's the takeaway. There is no excuse for worrying. None. There is no excuse for worrying. Do not worry is both a command to trust the Lord. Do not worry is a command to trust the Lord, but is also an invitation to enjoy His peace. It's also an invitation to enjoy His peace. So we have seen harmony in the fellowship, joy in the Lord, contentment in circumstances, and confident trust in God are the first steps to the path of spiritual stability. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His countenance upon you and give you peace. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things for the glory of Christ Jesus. God bless you.